church family. You can be seated, and as you do, will you take your copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis 9, in a moment, we will um, be in verses 1 through 17 this morning. Uh, As you get yourself settled and and find your notes and your place uh, in the Scripture, I want to uh, just address quickly those of you who uh, have become, uh, have started joining us for worship here uh, within the last several weeks or even the last couple of months since we have been back open. Uh, Typically, every month we offer what we call Connect Class, which is uh, a way of finding out more information about our church. And because of the pandemic, we have not offered that uh, since March. And uh, that's a crazy thought for me. Uh, but I'm glad to say that today we will begin again. And so uh, if you would like more information about our church, I'll invite you to stay in the worship center with us after the service is completed. Uh, this is actually a two-part class, so we'll do this two weeks in a row. Uh, but we're going to do it in here because we're not sure how many people are going to stay. We know there's been uh, numerous families have been joining us uh, for the first time over the last few months. And so uh, we'll invite you to stay. I'm going to teach on what we believe and what we value as a congregation. Your children are welcome to stay in here with you. Or We will also have uh, children, preschool, and student ministry programming at 11 o'clock. And so we could give you some instructions. Our Connect team could help you if you'd like to get them settled and then come back. Uh, we will, it'll take me a few minutes to, to get myself together anyway. And so uh, we will do that in here uh, after the service is uh, concluded. And I look forward to spending time uh, with our new families talking about our church and what we believe and value as a congregation. I invite you now to stand with me as we look at Genesis chapter 9. What I want to do this morning is just read verses 1 through 7 for the sake of time. It gives us an idea of uh, what we are considering from God's word this morning. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you to the green, the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And, f- and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. For every beast I will require it and for man From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. Let's pray together this morning. Father, as we consider this morning your great promise, the faithfulness of your promise to all generations, Would we find hope? Would we find solid ground? Would we trust in your word above all else? Because you, God, alone are wholly faithful. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for the firm foundation that is your promise to us that we can know and believe is true. Help us now as we approach your word this awe in our hearts, wonder for the character of God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
Over the last few weeks, as we have continued in our series in Genesis, we have been looking at the life of Noah. This week and next week will be the last two uh, events that the scripture records us from his life. We saw the flood of God's judgment two weeks ago and the ark of God's grace as God delivered Noah and uh, his family and the animals on the ark with him through that judgment. But now we see, we turn in Genesis 9 to the covenant of God's promise. And here's what we will understand from the scriptures this morning. That above all else, God is faithful. That when God says something, it is true. It can be wholly trusted above anything else. God will not lie. He will keep his word. Unfortunately, the same cannot be said to be true of us. It seems that this world we live in is ever embracing falsehood. That alternative facts and fake news has become more prevalent even than truth. A couple of years ago, a team of researchers at MIT did an extensive study on fake and true news stories disseminated via social media. They studied 126,000 news stories that had been shared over the course of a decade. And in studying those 126,000 news stories shared on social media, here's what they found. False information spreads online six times faster than true information. A fake news story has a 70% chance, 70% greater chance to be shared than a true one. And this isn't because there are robots or machines or uh, AI out there sharing these stories, trying to get people to believe them, but it is they found overwhelmingly human beings driven by emotion and the desire for something to be true that leads them to share something that is not. Now, this story, this Um, study was concluded in 2017, long before the COVID-19 pandemic reached our shores. I imagine that this is now even more true today than it was then. Because if there has been any time in history that people have not known what to believe, it has been now. If there has ever been a time that Uh, competing information coming from a myriad of sources, some that you would hope would be trustworthy and some that are dubious in nature. And yet we share what we want to believe to be true, not necessarily what is true. And Christians are not immune to this. Just two weeks ago, I watched a very prominent pastor share with his congregation information that is false easily proven to be false. And because a prominent pastor shared it, many, many Christians around our country gladly shared that information because it now had a name behind it that we could say, hey, if he believes that I can believe it too. This has led so many of us to say this phrase over and over, particularly in the last few months. I just don't know what to believe anymore. 
I imagine everyone in this room, if you've not said that, you've at least thought it. I just don't know what to believe anymore. I don't know who to trust. I don't know who is telling me the truth. Now, this is not a sermon about our falsehood. By the way, there is a sermon coming in a few weeks about our falsehood, as we will see Abraham tell a lie to protect himself. And we will deal again with our inability sometimes to hold to the truth. But I use this plague upon our land of false information and where it has led us into this position of just not knowing what to believe to be true to make this definitive statement. While you may turn on the internet or you may turn on your TV today or you may even have a conversation with someone here and not know if what is being shared with you is true, here's what you can take to the bank. God's word is truth. He will not lie to us. When God says something is true, it is true. His covenants endure forever. His promises have no mixture of error or falsehood at all. We can, in this time of such great uncertainty, believe God. And I believe that's what we see here in these first 17 verses of Genesis 9. That God should be believed. That when God makes a covenant with Noah here that lasts for all time, it is a covenant that is still as true today as it was in ancient times when God made it. Because God keeps his word. We begin with the instructions of God's covenant. That section that we read at the beginning of the sermon today has a beginning and an end. It's called an inclusio. It's, it's two lines that are very similar, marking a section as being complete. Verse one, we read, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then in verse seven, the end of this first of four speeches that God will make here in Genesis nine, verses one through 17, we read the same words, and you be fruitful and multiply. Then he gives a, a, a somewhat different set of instructions, increasing greatly on the earth and multiply in it. God provides instructions to Noah that are related to his covenant. And the first is that humanity should spread across the earth. Now remember, God has just, in the flood of his judgment, destroyed all life on earth that breathes air. Save Noah, his wife, three sons, their wives, and two or seven, depending on the type of animal, of each kind that God had brought on the ark. And God looks at Noah and says, be fruitful and multiply. Last week, we saw that Noah is a new Adam that God is starting over in his creation with a, with a new Adam. And, and this reiterates that point that Noah now has the same command that God gave to Adam at the beginning of creation. In Genesis 1:28, we read, And God blessed them, and God said to them, this is Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
So just as we see God bless Adam, we see God bless Noah. And just as we see God give the instruction to Adam to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, we see the same instruction to Noah that he is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It is not by accident that, we, that this is repeated for us. We are intended to see a new start for creation. We are intended in this story to see that while God's judgment came against those who had fallen so deep into sin in Noah's day, he is now starting over with Noah and his family. A new Adam now appears for us here in this text, and he is given the same instructions that the original one was given. Be fruitful and multiply. In between verses 1 through 7, we see other instructions that are similar to that which God spoke to Adam, but with some distinct differences. Look at verses 2 through 4. The Lord says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So this new Adam, Noah, exiting the ark with these few animals that were saved, God gives him an instruction concerning animal kind that is similar to but different from what he gave Adam. Back in Genesis 1.28, we read, and, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. And we saw that God in his covenant with Adam was that Adam was that dominion that he was to practice was a dominion of care that Adam named the animals, that Adam then cared for the animals. And it is not that Noah is going to have a different relationship in that he is to abuse nature, but now the relationship between man and nature is going to be different. What's different about it? Animals are going to be afraid that every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens is going to fear and and have dread and also every moving thing shall be food for you. Now this is not to say that pre-flood no one consumed animal flesh but it was not instructed by God that that humans do so until here. In the garden Adam and Eve were given the fruit of every tree save one, correct? They could eat anything in the garden that grew from the ground except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Here, a similar instruction is given. That they can now eat not only that which grows from the ground, but they can eat animals. They can eat the flesh of animals with one exception. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And this mirrors the instruction that we saw God give to Adam and Eve in the garden. Just as they were told, eat from everything except for one. This this, uh, has many similarities. You can eat from everything. Every moving thing, verse 3 says, that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So God is looking back on that covenant he made with Adam and saying, "Just, just as Adam was given all the green plants, I'm giving you all of the living things, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. God reserves one thing, and that is that humans are not to eat as animals eat. 
How, how do animals eat? Animals kill and eat. Sometimes while the life remains in it. But God's instructions, which later in the course of uh, in the course of redemptive history, God's going to put additional restrictions upon his people and what they eat. But here, there's only one. Not as we don't eat as the animals eat, but the blood would be drained before humans are to consume animals. And then he moves on. He continues in this idea that, that blood is the sign of life, right? The greatest sign of life that we have is a, is a heartbeat and a, and a pulse. And, and God recognizes that and says, so don't, don't eat animals with the blood still in it. And then he moves from the blood of animals then to the blood of humans in five and six, where we read, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. For every beast, I will require it. And for man, for his fellow man, I will require a reckoning from the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Here's what we're told post-flood. Murder will not be tolerated. Think back to the story post-garden. After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the first sin that's recorded in Scripture is the sin of, is the sin of one son against another. As Cain murders his brother Abel. And then as sin continues to proliferate around the globe, here's, here's what we end up seeing in, in the description of the days of Noah, and that is that the mighty men of renown, do you remember them? That they, they, they were mighty men of war. And that in the line of sin, in, in, in Cain's line, you ended up with, with one named Lamech who, who was willing to even take the lives of children if it benefited his needs. And God says, no more. No more will man live that way. If you take a life, your life will be taken. He even applies this to animals and says, if a wild animal, if a beast is to kill a man, then that beast should be killed. Where God allowed Cain to live after murdering his brother Abel, a new command is now in place for this new Adam. One who sheds blood will be punished equally. Because man is made in the image of God. While Noah and his family would have the rights to eat from all animals on the earth, the shedding of man's blood would be seen as different. And verse 6 tells us why. For God made man in his own image. This again brings us back to the covenant between God and Adam. It brings us back to creation itself where man was made in the image of God. And man being made in the image of God is special. We represent God here in this world. We have the ability to make moral decisions and, and to choose good and evil. And God says to take that life is to be punished. And again, just as the restrictions on eating animals will be further fleshed out in God's covenant with his uh, people in the Old Testament, so will the shedding of innocent blood. And God will give many restrictions, but here we see just this very general statement that says, murder will not be tolerated. The shedding of human blood will not be tolerated because there is something special about mankind. So the instructions that God gives to Noah is very similar to the ones that he gives to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply. Here's your relationship with nature. And do not tolerate the shedding of blood. 
Then we see the nature of God's covenant. Look at verses eight and nine. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Now verses eight, nine, 10, and 11 tell us about this covenant that God is making with Noah. And there are three things about this covenant that that speak to its nature, particularly when we think about it in light of the other covenants and promises that we see in the Old Testament. And so I want to to tell you three things that we see here from these verses. And the first is that this is a unilateral covenant. Who does the speaking here? God. Now, I've said this, I think, every week. Noah has still not spoken. In this whole story that we call the story of Noah, Noah has still not said a word, at least recorded in Scripture. Next week, Noah finally speaks. Up until this point, Noah has not spoken. Up until this point, God is the primary actor, that God is the main character. And and in this covenant, that is equally true. God is the unilateral actor here. It is his covenant twice in verse, once in verse nine and again in verse 11, we will see the words, my covenant. God speaking to Noah and telling him that he is the one establishing this covenant with you and your offspring after you. God is the sole initiator of this promise. Noah didn't ask for it. There's nothing Noah needs to do to receive it. There's nothing his generations will need to do to take part in it. It is a unilateral covenant that God is making between himself and all the earth. Look at verse 10. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. So not only is this a unilateral covenant, but it is also a universal covenant. This is a covenant that God makes with Noah's offspring. Every generation, the scripture says, that comes all the offspring that comes after you. So it is still a covenant that is in place today. But it is not just a covenant that God makes with mankind. It's a covenant that God makes with every living creature, birds, livestock, beasts of the earth. Everything that Noah took on the ark, God covenants with them. It is universal in nature. Most of the covenants that we see in the Old Testament are not universal covenants. They're covenants with one specific person or one specific family and ultimately one people group that God makes makes covenants that are exclusive, that you are either inside the covenant or outside the covenant. But this covenant that God makes with Noah stands separate from those in that it is entirely universal. You don't opt into this. It is just a promise that God makes, a promise that God keeps. Look at verse 11. I establish my covenant, there it is again, with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. There's the promise. So God has spoken about who's making the covenant. He's making it. Who he's making the covenant with, Noah, the the people that come after Noah, the animals that were on the ark with, with Noah, and all that were to come after them. So God's making a covenant universally with the earth, and here's what he promises. Never again will the floodwaters come. Never again will I flood the entire earth. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by a flood. And this we see from verse 11 is the third, an unconditional covenant. 
It is a unilateral, universal, unconditional covenant. This act of mercy cannot be affected by the actions of man. It is not dependent upon us to sustain this covenant. So often the covenants of scripture are conditional. That there is something that we are to do. These will often begin with the word if, right? If you do this, then I'll do this. The majority of covenants that we see in the Old Testament have some type of if attached to them. Even the new covenant that ushers us, the the redeemed people of God, into the presence of God is a conditional covenant. Now, it's not necessarily conditional in the way that we think. It's conditional upon Jesus, that Jesus shed his blood for the remission of sin, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died in our place, that Jesus was obedient to the new covenant so that we, by faith, may enter into his righteousness. So we often see conditions given to covenants, but not here. This one is completely unconditional. That no matter how bad things get, God will never destroy the earth by flood again. And things were bad when we were back in chapter 6. We saw that things had gotten very, very bad. And you look around our world today and you think things are getting bad again. And yes, while God promises not to judge the earth by flood again, he he does not promise not to judge the earth again because judgment is coming. But it will not come in this way. God's mercy will last forever and ever in this specific promise that flesh will never be cut off again. Third, we see the sign of God's covenant. Now listen to verses 12 through 17. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The major covenants of the Old Testament have a sign And many of these signs, that we're going to see two of them here briefly, but many of these signs are signs that are intended for as acts of obedience and reminders to those whom the sign applies. Let's look at two quickly. In Exodus 31, verses 16 and 17, we read, Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Sabbath, rest, is a sign, a covenant sign between God and his people. We can read this, even though it takes place in Exodus 31, and God is speaking specifically through Moses to Israel. We can read this as a sign of the first covenant that God made with Adam, because God appeals all the way back to creation here in this covenant, that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And this was an expectation from the beginning that God's people would mirror the actions of God. 
And so the very first covenant had a sign. The covenant between God and Adam, and that is Adam would work six days and rest on the seventh. And that God's people would continue to do so. And God codifies that sign in his relationship with Israel. In several weeks, we'll be in Genesis 17, and we'll see another covenant and another sign where God says to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So you see here a condition to the covenant that God makes with Abraham and those who would come after Abraham. And we see the sign of that covenant, probably the most, uh, the most recognizable sign of all of the Old Testament covenants, which was circumcision. But both of these, both the Sabbath and circumcision, are conditional signs instituted by God, but requ- which required the obedience of man. It was the responsibility of man to rest on the seventh day. It was the responsibility of man to circumcise the next generation after him. But what we see here in Genesis 9 is a covenant of God that is unlike the others. The sign of God's covenant with Noah is different. It requires no action on man's part because man cannot create a rainbow. You may be able to rest on the seventh day. You may be able to circumcise a child. But I can promise you this, you can't create a rainbow. Now, some of you are thinking, well, I go out there in the garden hose and just poke it just right at the sun. Yeah, but you didn't make that. You you shot some water up in the air, but you didn't put that rainbow in the sky. Only God can do that. Now, as I prepared this message, I read this text, and I'll I'll read a text who knows how many times in the the week preparing for it. Something stood out to me, and I just have to admit to you, I never thought about it like this before. And as I did the reading, it, it, it uh, read what others have written about this passage. It became more and more clear to me that I think we tell our children something that's inaccurate as it relates to this. Or at least I feel like I was told inaccurately and I've probably told my children inaccurately. So let's say you're driving home. I mean, it rained a lot this week, right? So let's say you're driving home this week and it rained and it stopped. Sun comes out and here comes a rainbow. And everybody, you know, I mean, everybody... I don't care how old you are. I don't care how many rainbows you've seen. You see a rainbow and you're like, oh, rainbow. You know, like you get really excited about a rainbow. And you got little kids in the car. And you're like, look, kids, that, that's God's sign promising us that he'll never flood the earth again. You ever told your kids that? I've told my kids that. You know, that's not what the Bible says. I started reading this text. And I'm like, wait, that's not what the Bible says. Go back and look. Look, look with me here, all right? Look at verse 14. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds. So who is it that puts it there? God puts it there. Verse 15. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again flood uh, to destroy all the flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, verse 16, I will see it 
and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. You notice never once in this text does God say he puts the rainbow in the sky for our benefit. He never once in this text says that he puts it there to remind us that he'll never flood the earth again. He says, I've put the bow in the sky so that when I see it, I'll remember. You say, what is God subject to forgetting things? No, it's not. So in a way it is a reminder to us, but it's a reminder to us that it's a reminder to God. It's visible to us so that we can know that God sees that and remembers his promise. And so today when a rainbow somewhere on this planet comes out and shines the glory of God after a rainstorm, God sees that and remembers his covenant that he made with Noah. That still to this day, God is standing by his word. His promise is sure. Yes, there are still floods that happen in this world. Someone will ask this question afterwards if I don't address it briefly. Yes, there are still floods uh, in, in this world. Some of them great floods. Some of them destroy entire cities. There, there are still going to be rainstorms and there are still going to be flash floods and there are still going to be rivers that swell and flood in places, but it will never be to this extent. Mankind will never be cut off again because God sees that sign and remembers his promise to us and keeps his word for all time. So what? The Lord is faithful to keep his promises and can be trusted above all else. Isn't that good news today? That the Lord is faithful. When he promises, he is faithful to keep it. And we will see as we continue on in Genesis, numerous promises of God. And if you're a student of God's word today, you've likely read dozens, if not hundreds of promises of God in the Old and New Testament. And here's what you can know. God is faithful to keep them. Above all else, God is truthful. He will keep his word. Your family eventually will fail you. They won't mean to, likely, but they will. Your friends, even your Christian friends, will fail you. They won't mean to, but they likely will. But God will never fail you. God will never tell you something and not follow through. God will always keep his word because he is truthful. He's faithful. We read in Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm in the scripture, and it highlights the word of God just over and over and over again. And here's what we read. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. The word of God is firmly fixed. It is completely true, and it is just as true today as it was yesterday. Does not matter what happens in our world. It does not matter what advances we make. God's word is true. It was true when he made the promise to Noah. It's true when he makes a covenant with Abraham and a covenant with Moses and Israel. It's true when he makes a covenant with David. It's true when he sends Jesus. It's true when he sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It's true when the gospel spreads around the world in the New Testament church. And it is true today. It is firmly fixed in the heavens. 
It can be trusted above all else, and there is great blessing in trusting it. The prophet Jeremiah says this, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. There's great blessing in trusting God. And that great blessing is that we have roots firmly planted in an unshakable, unmovable foundation. This foundation is unaffected by what happens around us. I love what he says there in Jeremiah 17, where he says, it sends out roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. We can think of heat being a, a, a representing persecution in this world. And yes, folks, persecution's coming. And there ain't a politician in the land that can save us from it. It's coming. It already exists in where most of Christians live in the world. Do you recognize today that most Christians don't live in Western cultures? Most Christians live today under persecution, under regimes that would seek to stamp them out, and yet they are flourishing. We're now reading of as many as a million Christians living in some of the most hostile nation, one of the most hostile nations in our land. It's incredible to think that no matter what tomorrow brings, no matter the heat of tomorrow, if we are firmly planted in God's word, our leaves will remain green. Then it says not to be anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit, which can represent the calamity of life. That when all else seems to fall away, God's word will stand true. While we may struggle to know what secular information to believe today, we don't have to struggle with believing God because his word never fails. He is true to his promises. He will keep them. And when you see that rainbow in the sky, no matter what our secular world tells you that rainbow represents, you know this, it represents the faithfulness of our God alone that he will keep his word to the generations. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are true. We thank you that your word is true. It endures forever. Father, I pray for the one in here who hears today that you were truthful, but yet they're just not sure. They've been taken in by the lies and schemes of an enemy that would lead them astray. Would they believe in you today? Would they trust in Jesus today who is truth, who is the word, who came to die in their place that they may be saved? Father, as it seems all around us, the world rages, let us stand on the truth of God, not on error, not on falsehood, but on truth, speaking the truth in love, recognizing that your word never fails. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.